so I'm Lisa Patterson, and I'm the mother of two awesome twins, one of which has special needs. I do improv, and I have always been someone that has worked with kids, but I've dabbled in the theater, and I am a 9-11 widow, and when I say that, um, that comes with a heavy weight, but I'm much more than a 9-11 widow, except that's a really big, important part of my life, obviously, in the last 20 years. I know that when I said that to people, either they can be stunned or feel awkward um, or feel sympathy or <laughs> maybe run back a little bit. Often people are surprised because I am really a pretty happy, outgoing, optimistic person. So there's, I always get, I would have never guessed you're a 9-11 widow. But anyway, I'm open to any questions from you, Ed, and you're listening to From the Heart. This From the Heart podcast is presented by Orange Kiwi Consulting. The three most challenging transitions owners face, namely scale, sale, and succession, can often result in costly and confusing journeys. But the good news is it doesn't need to be that way. At Orange Kiwi, we help our clients succeed where others have failed by coming alongside them to help them navigate the challenges others simply aren't able to. We understand how to help you avoid that costly and confusing journey that comes with realizing the results that you really want. Visit our website today at orangekiwiLLC.com and use the code HLG2021 to book a complimentary 30-minute consultation and find out for yourself how we can help you gain greater clarity, confidence, and control while experiencing less stress and more satisfaction. Can you believe it's been 20 years? Yes, because it's been a really long journey, yeah. but also, um, you know, that's the interesting thing about time. It's what you do with the time. So I really packed in a lot with my children in the last 20 years. So it does seem amazing because they were four when this happened and they're 24. Yeah. Also, it just seems like it's still, um, you know, a wound that's in the back of me that follows me. So it doesn't seem too far away. Yeah, I would imagine that it has to feel fresh at times. And then other times, like, you know, I've, I've seen other survivors interviewed people who were in the buildings and got out and others who lost people like you who lost Stephen, who have just said it feels like it was yesterday. And it feels like it was forever ago. And I'm sure that probably kind of uh, describes how you feel at times as well, I'd right. imagine. Yeah. 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 Did you see 20 years ago? Did you see that you'd be where you are today? I mean, you do you 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 you're in the conversation we've been interacting. I looked back, I think since like 2016. So it's been about five years that we've been emailing or talking. And this was before I had a podcast. But now that I have one, it just seemed like, okay, maybe this is this is why, you know, the, whatever the conversation is going to be but the opportunity for us to talk. Did you see 20 years ago that you'd be doing this well and doing improv, which we'll talk about in a little bit and some of the other things you've been doing? I know. That's a great question because I think, and, and that's sort of at the core of who I am when I, when I can answer this kind of in depth. But of course, you know, I was in shock and disbelief and um, there was a lot of unknown. It was so unexpected. It was so cruel, you know, the whole thing. But I knew that I had something within me that was going to survive this and not just survive, but thrive. So it, it's, Probably if someone asked me that second, I would have been like, what are you talking about? Why are you asking me that? You know, in, in the middle of a, of a crisis. But I, um, I do remember about uh, two days after it happened, some reporters from the uh, BBC were interviewing me in my backyard and um, some dear friends took my children to church. And 
were around some friends and it's the first time in those like 48 hours that I was alone. And they asked me, you know, what do you want done to the terrorists? And I hadn't even processed it was terrorists. I mean, I knew, but I hadn't really looked at it in an objective way that other people who didn't have someone personally in the towers or on a plane. But I remember I said that my late husband, my husband fell in love with my spirit and that I made a vow to those guys right there um, that my spirit, I was going to keep my spirit. And the thing is, it's gotten stronger. And I kind of knew that because when someone witnesses your life and sees you and my late husband, Stephen saw me that I already had this spirit and how can you see a spirit, you know, uh, something within me. And uh, so he was kind of witnessing my life. And I think I just felt the hardest thing was now the one guy who got me, who understood me, <laughs> is no longer here. Yeah. So how am I going to do this? But if that answers your question, um, yeah. I don't think you project that far ahead, um, but you do get like overwhelmed with, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? What was you that know? first day? I mean, I, I want to go back and, and hear, I, I've read a lot about your courtship and your relationship with Stephen beforehand and, you know, just the almost it feels on the outside looking like the fairy tale romance and then the kids and so forth um talk about just that like the the days leading up to you know i I think he had been sick and was potentially not going to go to work is that right and then was gonna come home early or what have you right he um we had just been a, a week away at the beach down in beach haven and new jersey and we spent a week as a family of four together and it was wonderful And then um, one of the kids had a fever and then he caught it. So we came home a day or two early. And so on Monday, September 10th, he went to work and, you know, his just, he had a fever. He wasn't feeling well. He came home. So I said, don't go in tomorrow, you know, that night. And he said, I have to, I just took a week off. And Hmm. he had a really good um, work ethic. You know, he would just go in no, no matter what. And then he called me that morning at about 7.30, as he always did. He always called as soon as he got to the office. And he had like six calls a day when he would call me. Most of my friends said, my husbands don't like call me (laughs) from work. And um, we just had this really cool connection. He always wanted to see what I was doing. This is before we had kids and after. Anyway, when he called, I said, how are you feeling now? And he said, worse. And I said, come home. Mm. Just like that. And I had a really weird feeling. I was like, come home. Like I really... I, I, of course, didn't have a premonition that that was, you know, yeah. names were going to hit the building, but I had a premonition in a weird way that just something wasn't right. Or he, and maybe I just thought he was not feeling well. And he said, I'll, I'll come back after the morning because he was a bond trader and yeah. mornings were really crucial. And um, I thought he must be feeling pretty sick if he's going to come home early. Yeah. Where were, were you? Where? So the last conversation he called you about 730, the, the, the morning I love well, you. Uh, yeah, he called at 730 and then he spoke to my children, my twins, Lucy and Wyatt, and it was their second day of preschool. Hmm. And he, they didn't want to go back. You know, the second day, the first day was wonderful. And the yeah. second day kind of I got to do this again. I thought that was a one time thing. Right. Yeah. They were like, it's more fun here. And so he talked to each of them on the phone and I was holding the phone and I was hearing their little conversations. And he told each of them what he would do with them that night when he got back and he said he was going to call at lunchtime to see because preschool, they came home, you know, half day. He always called me. The second call in the morning was always at 845. Then I would go to, I was going to go to nursery school at like 850. 
But at 8.45, the call, they would come and I was getting them ready a little because I thought, oh, they don't want to go. And I had them ready early. And I said, let me just go and get them out the door so that we're on time and all of this. So I dropped them off at their preschool. And I mean, this is interesting thing about trauma that this day becomes so clear when I recall it and tell it, it becomes much clearer than what I did three days ago. Yeah, exactly. What I had for breakfast yesterday. I don't remember those details 20 years ago. When someone wants me the details, I mean, I can remember the vivid colors, smells, everything. And I just even remember them waving to me, running in and the teacher letting me know it's okay. And as I drove off, I was like, oh, I have two and a half hours free. Should I (laughs) go for a run? Should I go to the gym? Should I get coffee and see a friend? Should I go nap? Because, you know. Yeah, sleep is is, yeah valuable at that point. Right when I thought of that, I was going down this very windy road, Cottage Road in New Jersey, and I heard my radio station was interrupted. And the the guy said, "Um, a small plane has hit the Trade Center. And I went, that poor pilot. I just thought of the pilot immediately. And I said, how did he do that? That must have been terrible. And they were saying it was a small Cessna. And and then I thought, well, maybe he's going to have to leave work because there's going to be a lot of commotion. Sure. um, And then I, so I went straight home and I turned on the TV and I was like, that wasn't a Cessna. Like, what is, and I have chills even when I just said that. And I stared at the TV and right then I just said, my life has changed. Wow. I didn't say it's over. I didn't say like, why me? And I just went, I knew, I knew this was bad. And, and Hey, I could have had a chance there because it was, I was like, which tower are they? Is it, I was trying to focus. Like maybe it's not his, it's his. And then the rest of the day just sort of went on like fast motion and slow motion at the same time, because I was like trying, I went right into the kitchen and that's when we had the phones hanging on the walls. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, I had the one cell phone, we even shared a cell phone, but I had it because the children were with me. I remember dialing and getting a very strange busy signal to his office. It didn't sound like a regular busy signal. And I was like, oh man, it's it's his bill. It's definitely his. And then um, I, there was call waiting in those days on the phone. And I thought maybe he left me a message. Maybe he left work early. He didn't feel well. He took my advice. Right. And, and it was my mom saying, call me right away. I have something to tell you about Steven's building. And she was really calm. And then I called her and right in between that before actually before I called her when I looked back at the TV because I sort of had to arch out I actually wrote a, a a one act a short play about this just all about a woman doing what I'm saying it's kind of great work for an actress like holding huh. the phone in the cord and wrapping sure. it around things falling off the counter and trying <laughs> to look at the, make these calls but um anyway so I I remember I just went into kind of a fetal position and I just started screaming I was like talk about regression. They say when something like that happens, you regress. So say if children had already given up their bottles, they want their bottles again. When yeah. I kind of went into a fetal position and I was screaming and, and then I just sort of came out of it. And, and that's, I think when my spirit started going, like, figure it out, like figure it out. And I looked out the door and usually there's people with baby strollers and joggers and things. No one, it just seemed eerily quiet. And I was like, where is everyone? And then I got on the phone, called my mom, asked her and my stepfather to come out. And, and then I called Stephen's brother, my brother-in-law, George, and 
he hadn't known what, what I was talking about. He thought it was crazy. He had just mm. gotten to work. Yeah. So he was like, what are you talking about? And I think it was him. He said, well, we have one chance. There's two buildings. Maybe it's not his. And of course, like when I was on the phone with him, the second plane. Second one hit. You know, yeah. It, and I was like, we have no fucking chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I'm getting in the car. I'm coming up to you. And he was way down in South Jersey. So and then just sort of uh, one of my girlfriends came over because she knew. And, and I, hey, I lived in Ridgewood, New Jersey, where a lot of guys worked on Wall Street or even in the Trade Center itself. Sure, sure. So people just started coming over and it was getting very overwhelming because, you know, I was trying to focus on everyone who's coming in, get information from the TV. Plus, your kids are going to be like out of school any minute. Yes. And I yeah. know I was like, I'm going to have to go pick them up because this is all transpiring. And I'm. Um, Fortunately, Wyatt at the time, who had, had just acquired this brain injury, had a shadow with him, a, a, like an assistant. And so she was there and thankfully she got them and brought them to her house. So first she actually brought them to my house. And about that time, some relatives of people, the kids thought there was a party, there were all these yeah. people here. And I didn't want to tell them at age four yet that what was going on because I wanted them to be with me and then stay with me and not leave because I had something that I was in my head scripting to tell them age appropriate because we didn't know yet. You know, I wasn't yeah. going to say he was dead and yeah. I wasn't going to say it didn't look you know, good, but you sure didn't know at that dead. point. Right. But, yeah. You know, I had to be really careful. So I think um, I'm so thankful for this woman, Mar um, Margie and, um, and the pre people at the preschool. So, and then where do you want to know what else what kind of well, i'm just happened? curious so yeah so you've got family congregating now yeah. and so i'm just curious because the rest of the world we're all watching and we're we're terrified and we don't most of us don't know anybody there but it's it's american soil it's right you know i i was driving in the car it was three hours you know pacific coast time so it was like 6 a.m oh. here yes. and i was actually heading into the gym and i heard the guys that I listen to on the radio every day talking about this and they described it the same way. A light plane has hit the world. I think and a couple of years before, I seem to recall remembering that there was a light plane that had crashed into a building somewhere in, in New York as well. Yeah. And yeah. so I just kind of, my mind went to that and then I'm on the bike or whatever equipment I'm on next to a friend of mine. And all of a sudden we see the second tower get hit. And that's when we both looked at each other and said, we're at war. Right. It went from, <laughs> this was an accident to, no, that wasn't a light plane and this wasn't an accident. When did that cross your mind that this is a terrorist um, act or that? Truthfully, like, I don't think in all honesty, because of the shock and the fear and the focus on like counting the floors and seeing where Stevens, he was on 105 and I was just trying to figure it out. And if there was, he had sort of told me the layout of the building. And I was like, if, if the smoke's going this way, you know, I was doing a lot of that, like right. on detective work. So I... And shock's a, a, a kind of a cool thing too, because yeah. it certainly protects you. protects you in many ways. So even when you see, you know, I saw a guy surfing the other day and he fell on his board and turned out he broke his ribs, but he was in shock and you could like actually see it, but it took care of him until paramedics got there. It's an interesting thing. So yeah. um, I think it was kind of taking care of me in a, in a weird way, but I, um, I didn't even think it was murder or a crime like those words didn't come until a few days later when I had to go into New York City and they had set up all these tables at a pier where you had to go to crime victims you had to go to your place of employment like that's a whole story in itself what was fascinating there but I think um I wasn't even 
I could see like my uncle was there and people were talking like this and they were trying to keep a lot of that from me. But I, I remember they were worried on the news about like some gas poisons or something, but I wasn't sure. And I was like, it started creeping in then. I was like, wait, are they, um, is that from the, the planes, like the, the fuel, or are they now worried that they're like you know, yeah. sending this out? So I was, I think it was just too huge for me to grasp all of that at once. Because like I said, I had, I was worried for Stephen's welfare. And then I was worried about my children yeah. more than I was myself um, at the time. And then um, because I could really see that, all my favorite people were in my room in my yeah, house yeah. like my cousins there's three boy cousins i'm close to brothers and when the first one came in dave i'll get emotional as soon as he walked in because he's like a brother to me i lost my own brother and my dad when i was young and yeah. when he walked in i go everything's gonna be okay dave's here because yeah. he has a really cool way and and you know when certain girlfriends and certain family members came i just went uh, like I have everything I need right now, but I don't have Steven. And how am I going to do this? Tell the kids this. So um, they, they, those two things were kind of battling each yeah. other. How long of a process was it from the morning that it all happened to where you actually got confirmation that Steven was indeed gone? Oh yeah. Good question. Cause I did tell the kids something before I got confirmation um, and then not real confirmation. So that happened on a Tuesday on Thursday night. Howard Lutnick, the CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald, where Stephen worked, um, was being interviewed on TV. And he said, no one from Cantor Fitzgerald got out. And wow. I just was like, I was, open, I was on the phone with my sister-in-law. We both heard it. She, I could tell was like really upset, but I, I am like an optimist, but I'm a realist. And yeah. I already knew, like, he didn't survive it. He would have called me. He would You'd have, have heard from him. It's been 48 hours. You would have heard. Yeah. To, to get out. And I knew him that uh, kind of the, just the type of guy he was. But I, you know, you, the, we were getting a lot of mixed messages on the media. And I even called, like, my local police station and asked because we heard that there were bodies or injured people at Liberty State Park and all of these things. And you know, I was going to go there, I was going to go into the city and, you know, look for him. Yeah. And um, that's where, you know, shock and just what you're feeling are all over the place. And you need people around you that are like, like my cousin Dave, or, you know, my brother-in-law were like, you can't go in the city because you can't leave the kids, you know, kind of thing. Right. So then you're like, okay. Um, I, right before the day before that, I told my kids that um, a lot of daddies were, at work and some mommies. But one reason I said daddies is because when I lost my dad, when I was 11, I didn't know anyone who dad died, you know, yeah. it was in a little suburban town and, you know, all the fathers were young. And so I remembered feeling so isolated and alone and not knowing anyone. So I, I just sort of worded, I said, there's a lot of people in that building, a lot of daddies trying to get home. And there's a problem in the building and they're working on it. I didn't want to, you know, scare them. Obviously I wouldn't show yeah. them the footage. So there was a little bit of prep and, you know, kids are smart and they know they, they felt it. And then um, that Friday morning. So after Howard Lutnick made that, I was sitting on the curb of my house trying to figure out like <laughs> how to, what's the best way to tell them that he died. Yeah. That I'm, because there is no body. There is no, it's not like he had a heart attack at work that came right. on and unexpectedly 
And then we go to the funeral home and look at the body. There's no, um, it's not like a car accident. Like I can't show you the, the accident, but this is what the car, you know, I, it was just really tricky. Yeah. So one of my good friends, Becky from Ridgewood happened to drive up to check on me and she saw me sitting there and she sat down next to me and she said, you know, my mom died when I was young and my dad said, I've been a really good father. Um, now I'm going to be a better father. <laughs> and yeah. mom died. And I said, can I use that? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to borrow that one. Right. And, uh, basically that's what I told each separately. And I had um, very close family members with me that cousin Dave, I mentioned his wife at the time, Laura, and we did it separately. And I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it was sort of so I could get each child their own time and time to, yeah. presence in it. And also with Wyatt's disability, there was a different kind of component. Um, and they both had two completely different reactions, um, mm. which are the reactions that sort of has stayed with them through life. Like you got to see, so kids, people think, you know, kids are resilient. You just, no, no, no. It, it's taken me 20 years of hard work of making yeah. sure that they're teaching them resiliency and nurturing it. That, that's why they're in remarkable places, I think, because they have done the work that's needed. Yeah. And Lucy, from what I've read, Lucy handled it by being social like you, a very social person, lot, lots of friends around. And, you know, Wyatt maybe didn't have quite the capacity, you know, with the intellectual disability, I would imagine, to handle it the same way. Is that pretty accurate? Well, well actually, but actually differently. Lucy tucked everything in and true, she wanted to go on as business as usual. Let me play with my friends. I would say Wyatt and I are the more social of the three oh, okay. of us. Lucy would tell you that now, but yeah. she was very independent and always is and still is and very um, just like business as usual and don't discuss it. Me when I when I told her that day, she didn't want to come into the room. She knew she was holding on to the molding and not trying to walk in, and um, heard it got really upset and then left. And like I said, was just, there were so many people in the house who's going to play with me now. Let's, you know, play grocery store or something. Yeah. Wyatt uh, was the one who was very, um, very, really got it right away. And then never stopped talking about Stephen and asking yeah. a million, million questions. Lucy's questions about it never came till about seventh grade. And mm -hmm. A contrary, she never wanted Wyatt to discuss it or me. Anytime Wyatt brought him up, she would get mad and say, make him stop, make him stop. Which, you know, if this was a movie played, of course, as the viewer, you're like, grief is really hard when you're just dealing with it. Now you have someone in your face talking about it. Sure. It. You know, Wyatt would wait at the window every night at six and say, daddy, it's me, Wyatt, where are you? Come back, come back, come home. And every night that car didn't come in and inconsolable crying that turned into epic tantrums and just me holding him in his, in my, the nape of my neck or allowing him to roll on the floor. And yeah. probably the greatest gift I could give him because I couldn't get his dad back was allowing him to so openly grieve. It was like a wound, you know, it's like if, if if someone slashed their leg open, you try to get all the gauze in the world to do it. But I just, he just needed to tell his story over and over and over. It was painful. I mean, it wasn't easy for me because, you know, I did want to just like pick up, get them to school. But he, one of my neighbors said, I used to see you guys walking to school every day and why it's screaming, crying for daddy. Hmm. And 
one would ask, why did I continue to walk? Because we were walking through the grief. I wasn't going to like sit, you know, I, I was letting him do it. And if my neighborhood had to hear it, then they were, my town was grieving with us anyway. Sure. And um, yeah, so it was, it was tough, but Lucy's done amazing work and it was in her time, you know, so I had to give her the benefit and my only, um, you know, thing was that I wanted her to do the work that I was doing privately from them. I would start to tell her about it. And I said, you need to tell your story to someone. It can be me, it can be a therapist, but it has to be someone that can listen and understand because that's the only way through this. Otherwise it's going to whap you in the face. Just stay inside and just eat you up. Yeah. I'm trying. I don't think we ever get over anything like this. So I guess I'll, I'll ask the question in a minute about, you know, was there a tipping point for you or the kids, but you know, the footage is on TV all the time. Every year there's an anniversary. Every year there's something or some story comes out or, you know, when bin Laden was finally captured and killed or, you know, there's always something on the news. Do you find you just kind of avoiding the news or when that comes on, what what's the response that you or the kids have had over the years? I think in the early years, you know, I kind of went to it because it was helping me make sense. Like I was you know, interested in, in just stuff or how other people were dealing. You know, there's this great organization, Tuesday's Children, that I'm on the family board of that's really been there since day one for all the children. And he, I hadn't even, Stephen hadn't, didn't have an opportunity to take his kids to a pro ball game. Mm-hmm. And Stephen loved sports more than anything. And he yeah. played with those kids, especially Wyatt. And why it has, even with his disability, is very athletic and has a gift for like hitting a baseball and doing things. And if Stephen weren't killed, I guarantee you why it would be a pitch hitter for <laughs> the or something because yeah. he's that gifted, but you need someone in the game with you the whole time. Who, who is going to do that? Who's going to throw balls with him except right. his dad? Um, but Tuesday's children, you know, we went to our first ball games with them. So you didn't feel alone. Like you're, I'm sitting yeah. in the box by my zero. I mean, the seats, they got us a box and you were kind of with other widows, widowers, you know, and people. So you could kind of bond and then the kids were together and they didn't feel like, so I would say like in the beginning, I kind of um, went towards that in media, but now I don't need it. You know, I yeah. don't, I, I get the interest in that. Um, it, you know, it depends what it is. Um, with the Bin Laden thing, um, a really nice gift was that I got to meet President Obama a few days mm-hmm. after that. So, you know, with comes with all this grief and trauma and loss have been other gifts, not just meeting President Obama, but just other things for myself. So it's, yeah. you start kind of living your new life and, you know, in the beginning, it's like, what is a new normal? You don't even want to hear that, you know? Yeah, because now we hear that all the time with COVID, the new normal, you know, we're all yes, back right. in different ways. So yeah, and that I, I think I read too, I think in your mo- note that you wrote to me a while back when we were scheduling this, you talked about when you were going through this, when Stephen was killed, you and the kids had each other, you had people, you had your, your cousin, you had relatives and family and friends rallying around you coming to the house taking your kids to church, taking, you know, just all these things where people could rally, but then you've got COVID where you're just kind of quarantined and it's just the three of you. Did you find yourselves or did you personally find yourself kind of hearkening back to some of that pain from 20 years ago that maybe it wasn't like that you didn't deal with it, but maybe it was just kind of coming up again because now you're more alone than you were then? 
Yeah, I certainly. I mean, the, the beginning of the pandemic was very triggering because, again, it was something that was unknown for all of us. You know, um, the one thing that was different is we were all facing it globally. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't like, um, and I think immediately my daughter was with me and then we had just been on a trip to Mexico, the three of us. And when we came back, I sort of said to them, I think this, this is going to get pretty bad. And uh, Lucy was like, really? You know, and I, I just said, I have a feeling, but I got you guys. And um, and we had, Wyatt had gone back to his farm program. And a few days later, I said, I'm bringing him right home, which is a huge thing because with Wyatt's disability, he needs structure and routine, routine. And yeah. safety and no TVs and just like what the glorious place he has at the farm program where he's very insulated from a lot of what we all see. And, uh, but I, I just knew with the unknown, we had to come together. So I did feel this intense mama bear, like I got to take care of him again. I I've got to do this. And you're right. The one thing is uh, my cousin, Dave, or my other, you know, his brother's couldn't come hang out with me. Right. They were doing the same thing at their house. And my good friends, we didn't see anyone. So I really was thinking back like, man, that was great having everyone around when you have a crisis. You need your community, you need your people, you know, who, your friends and your family. Um, so that was really hard and really isolating, but we, we tried to make it really fun as we could. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, got all my information every morning the way I could without them really having to listen to it. Lucy's of age, so she could, but sure. certainly didn't want to do that to Wyatt. He thought it was just cool. I'm home. Great. You know, mm -hmm. I'm watching yeah. Yeah. hanging out <laughs> and, with my two favorite people, my mom. Yeah, and Lucy. I, yeah. I don't have to have my demands at the farm of, you know, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, yeah. So I found it really, um, Look, I'm doing really well, but I do have PTS and I can be easily triggered if a car backfires or my my worry can go in a million places. And I've worked really hard for many years with a therapist on and other techniques to not yeah. allow that to happen. But it's it's right there, it can be pierced open in a second, you know. Do you have good support from others that went through it too at the same time? I mean, I know you've got Tuesday children and you've got other organizations. Are there friendships or things that you've learned from others that went through it that same day? Yeah. Um, you know, two of my very best friends are nine 11 widows, you know, we don't, yeah. but, um, and we're super close. And so we're, and then there's some other ones that were in my initial support group, that there's a bond that's, I love them dearly. And I could pick up the phone at any time and talk to them and, or see them. And then there's some other ones of, a little further out that I've met through other ways through my kids or just other um, things I've been on. So it's just interesting to see same thing happen to us on, on the same day and how we've responded or reacted, which yeah. are two different things, but I, Absolutely. I about how, what my journey is, and maybe it helps others when there is something, I think like, if I look back at the lessons, I, I'm not an expert on it, but I'm an expert on me and right. how I did it and why I feel I'm in a good place. I don't know if you want to go there or. Sure. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear because there are people going through trauma and stress and, and loss in a lot of different ways. It could be that husband that had a heart attack or people who lost loved ones to COVID or 9-11 survivors and, uh, you know, widows and widowers. 
I'm sure that you've learned lessons that can be very applicable to their lives. So yeah, please, anything that you'd like to share, this is uh, your opportunity. Okay, so. yeah. And also you went, you asked if there was a tipping point for us, but I wasn't sure if you had a specific question. If you well, uh, yeah, did, was there a point where you just kind of, you know, every day you wake up and you're feeling the pain or every day you wake up and it's like, you know, oh, here we are still in COVID. I can't go out. I can't see my friends or what have you. But then you wake up one day and it's like, it's no longer is it the first thought you have. Do you remember having that feeling? All honesty, and I know this can really irritate some listeners. <laughs> I have always woken up with curiosity for the day. Mm -hmm. So, and yes, did that irritate my late husband, Stephen? But there was one thing he <laughs> loved about it. He goes, you wake up always happy and excited for what the day brings. I was born that way. I mean, if, <laughs> if I could bottle it, I mean, I have to say that I've had it, but I've had a lot of tragedies before 9-11. I was abandoned at birth. My brother died when I was 23. My dad died when I was 11. And I was with my best guy friend when we were teenagers and he dove in the waters on Nantucket and was instantly paralyzed. He's a quadriplegic to this day. Wow. Um, and you know, that's really life changing because you just see the fragility of life. Like one minute you guys are hanging out, we're mm -hmm. running, we're in Nantucket. And then I'm by his side orchestrating like a plan to get an ambulance there when we're on a beach without guards, lifeguards. Wow. So anyway, like, um, but so there are a lot of people that have it worse than me. And I will say that as horrific as 9-11 was, is like remembering it, how it was horrendous, how cruel, what it took away from not only my family, but so many is that Wyatt's disability is much harder because there's more unknowns and that's another story. Yeah. But, um, I think like I never not I never woke up and went like I can't get out of bed. Now I know that's like a common thing. Like I I had my kids needed me, so there was absolutely no choice yeah. to like, did I maybe want to like, you know. <laughs> um I was so excited that they were in my life that I was that was separate of the loss, if you can think of it, and that it was a privilege for me to be there and he couldn't, you know, and he was the star of the show, believe me, you know, <laughs> he thought he was great. So I was like, all right, I gotta yeah. You know, I, and Lucy will say, I mean, they, they, they're, they love me very much. Think about the last time you bought a gift for a friend or family member. The better you know them, the easier it was to get them something memorable, right? Well, it's the same for brands that want to deliver memorable customer experiences. The better they know their customers, the more likely they are to establish strong relationships, exceed expectations, and build loyalty. At McKenzie, that's what we do. We empower brands to understand and connect with the person behind the purchase so their customer experiences are meaningful, unique, and truly valuable. Learn more at mckenziecorp.com. I think what my previous losses and things showed me that suffering is temporary. Even, even when you're in the grips and it's so horrific and you don't think it, you think, I'll never get out of this. It's so bad. All feelings change. This is something I've told all my students and I tell all feelings pass. Somewhere in my brain, it, I think it was telling me that, it, and the suffering would come in different degrees. So it doesn't mean I didn't ever feel devastated or like rageful or sad or anything, but I was also like, man, he gave me the greatest gift. He gave me these twins. Amazing like, kids. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so um, the other two, so there's three things like that, you know, you have to remember that this intense suffering is going to change. It doesn't mean it's ever going away. It's just going to always like, like the waves that are I'm looking out at change and hurricanes, like I just had to, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. you know, come and then 
I will say I'm always more worried when everything's going well, that's when I get scared. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and then, you know, I've always had, like I said, this insatiable curiosity of what's going to happen. Like, what are we going to do? What are, what are we going to be? And then the, other, the third thing is that always to give to others. It, you know, it's something my mom and my dad taught me, like you're in this world to give to others, to be of service, to help people. So it was awkward getting so much help or asking for help when I needed it, when Stephen was killed, or especially for a child with special needs. I need a lot of help. I want to do it on my own. And you can't. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not healthy. So um, if I ever can help anyone who's had a loss or kids, and so, and helping my kids is in that category, by the way, of giving to others. So my whole, my whole, the thing was I had to show up for myself so I could show up for the kids. So it was very, very sacrificed. Put the oxygen mask on me. I was having that thought in my head. I was going there. Should put the oxygen, oxygen on you first before you can put it on your kids. And it looked selfish a lot of times when I did things that gave me pleasure or joy or something, but it was, it was refueling me so that I could show up for the kids and, and, you know, we've done really fantastic things over the last 20 years that have, yeah. and I hope that I've modeled to them and nurtured their resilient nature that they both have. And, you know, Wyatt just left today for his farm program and he was surfing yesterday after the hurricane with a surf instructor. I mean, this is a boy with a brain injury yeah. who's loving life yep. and he will be out on his board and he paddles out and he goes, hi, daddy, to the sky. Mm. Instructors tell me, yeah. you know, so it's just, you know, keeping and Lucy's in grad school for social work. What better is that? She's giving back to the world, yeah. you know, uh, through her pain. So yeah, I, I love that we're in good places, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have hard moments. And stuff. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I think you and I connected at first when I saw your story and, and read about Wyatt. Uh, I mentioned to you, I think then, and uh, now my two of my grandsons are are once turning 10 next week. By the time this airs, he'll be 10 and the other is seven. And they're they both have autism and, you know, they're high functioning. They're you know, they play their video games and they can have, you know, hold a conversation to a certain extent, not like their other you know cousins who do not have autism. But we worry at times what's going to happen when they get older and, you know, when they're young adults or in their 20s and so forth. Can you talk about the farm where Wyatt is? I read the story of how, you know, you, you heard about it through someone, I think you were on vacation and she was telling you about it. And then you went there and the experience yeah. of, of uh, just walk us through that experience and, and tell us a little bit about the farm for those of us who have been touched by that as well. Cause we, we try to figure out what's going to happen with our, our grandsons when they're 18, 19, 20, 30 years old. Exactly. And that's a huge problem that needs great attention. And I've gone to Capitol Hill and spoken to certain um, congressmen and senators with a group called Together for Choice. Um, and we have pro bono attorneys from DC that come. So it's not like I'm just randomly knocking on a, on a door, although I have, you know, tried mm -hmm. to just, mm -hmm. uh, just something about me is I'm really proactive. So even when Stephen was alive, I worried about this. And I would say to Stephen, what are we going to do about Wyatt if this doesn't get cured, fixed, because they didn't really know what was wrong. I I suspected it was autism. Um, and I walked into doctor's offices and said, I think my son's autistic. And they were like, no one does that. No one comes <laughs> in. We're usually the ones that have to say, right. this is what it is. And then the parents are in denial. And 
but because um, he kind of he has a lot of symptoms that mainly he always had transition issues, which is hard to this day. And as you know, with autism or anything, if someone has a problem with the transition, it mm -hmm. upends your life. Right. So just think if you're watching a, a football game and TV and your wife, anyone, your wife comes in and says, oh, go to the store for me right now. I need this. No one wants to leave the couch because they want to watch it. Yeah. But they might know in their head to just, okay, honey, I'll go do it. And they come back. Wyatt would have epic tantrums. Any transition we made, even if it was things he wanted to do, um, he still struggles with that. Mm. So that made, you know, my earlier story much harder because I wanted to do so much with these kids. So it was yeah. always a game of, I really missed Steven in that because you needed two people or more with Wyatt. Sure. You know, I would, Lucy would be all ready and we were going to go somewhere. And then he was having an epic tantrum, which was utterly unfair to Lucy horrendous for me because now I had two kids that were, you know, mm -hmm. two different. So it's, it's, I have to say that Lucy is remarkable because she's endured not only the loss of her dad, but a twin that is problematic in many areas. It's dictated a lot of what her life has had yes. to be. Yeah. And so what I did in turn, and this helps with special needs, my focus was Lucy and then Wyatt. Usually a special needs child gets all the attention in that immediate. I would always think, okay, we're going to do this. How am I going to get Lucy here? We're going to go there. She wants to see a Broadway play. Okay. How can I make it work for Wyatt? Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell the ushers. I'm going to bring a bag of tricks in my bag. Mm -hmm. How do I quickly get out with him? Will you watch my door? You know, I always, everything was you had a plan. planned and really with Lucy in mind and, and hiring you know, a nanny at times to be at the house. So if I had, you know, but with the, so I always worried about this and I always researched what was out there and I realized there wasn't enough for anybody with autism or any dis Down syndrome, anything. And, you know, that concerned me anyway, because I was an advocate for my friend, Rich, who's paralyzed in the accident for the physically disabled. I helped change something in, in Nantucket before the American with Disabilities Act as a punky teenager. Mm -hmm. um, this was going to be more challenging because it's intellectual disabilities and they don't have a voice and you have to right. be their voice usually often. And I just hit so many roadblocks, couldn't find anything, R drove to so many places by myself, shedding tears, saying, you know, the outlook does not look good. So I began to create in my mind what I wanted for him. And I was like, well, he loves the beach and he loves animals. Mm. <laughs> Wh which way could we go? And I was seriously going to move him to Hawaii. And then I thought like, well, and then that'll be great for him and me because he and I love the beach, <laughs> but yeah. what will yeah. we do? And, um, and then anyway, when I, back to that story, I was on vacation in Puerto Rico, one February break, I just say, I got to get them out of town and go somewhere hot. And because I had been driving to like three places and they looked like asylums, nowhere you would send your children to. And I was sitting next to this beautiful woman and we were just sharing stories. And she said, I know of a farm. Her name is Betsy Bacon. She happens to be the sister-in-law of uh, the wonderful actor, Kevin Bacon. Oh, wow. Cool. And, uh, and her husband's Michael Bacon, the Bacon brothers. And um, they became dear friends. They actually knew of this, farm in Pennsylvania near their weekend home. And Betsy and her twin sister came with me on the tour. I mean, they didn't even know me, how lovely. Right. And they said, you've been doing this all alone. You're driving to places and looking, you probably need another set of eyes and someone to talk through what we see. And they went, and again, I'm, I'm having 
chills because the kindness of strangers, that phrase that become, you know, your friends and uh, they went with me and um, they loved it as much as I did. So I felt really good that someone objectively, there was one spot and a waiting list and he was, hmm. it was for 18 to 21 year olds. He was 17 and hmm. like half. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. And um, they said, well, he has to come for an interview and then he has to come back for three days. And, you know, it was this whole thing that was this excruciatingly long time for me, but farm life, the Camp Hill farm lives are very slow and wonderful and see how I'm slowing down. Yeah, exactly. I, yep. I, you know, when I talk about all these painful stories, I feel my voice pressurized because there's a lot of anxiety. And I said, Wyatt's story is the harder one because you know, as a parent or a grandparent, we just want our kids to be independent. And so when we're not here, we know that they're content and they can manage. So I found, you know, this, this small farm and why it spent two years there and it got him into their more, um, the farm for the young adults in New York and he's doing fantastic. And, you know, leaving today, of course, he didn't want to leave vacation. Sure. Serving every day, swimming and watching just movies on the couch. But he is excited. His friend Olivia is moving into his house. And she said to me, she has her own disability quote, but she's, I think, wiser than all of us. She said, <laughs> Lisa, she messaged me and said, I've been wanting to live with Wyatt since I met him. Wow. That's the greatest gift a mother of special needs yeah. can get. Because, you know, and he's so loved there. And he's kind of um, the mayor of the community. You know, he just walks That's around true. and everybody loves him so does that solve a problem for me? Yes, I hope. I hope he can. It's a place he could be the rest of my life, of his life, so that when something happens to me, Lucy isn't handling it by sure. herself. But I recognize that there are so many people in positions that don't have it. So I could sit back and not worry and not help, but I'm out there helping others. Yeah. So I continue to go to Capitol Hill when we can resume in person. When the lawyers say we're ready, I'm jumping the first train to DC because I want to share why we need it, why it's why they're wonderful, and that um, they're not institutionalizing them. They're actually, you know, these farmsteads are great because you know they're learning all aspects of farming and they're contributing too. That's a big part. We worry about how are they going to contribute. Yeah. So Wyatt cooks, he chops all the vegetables nice. and produce in the morning and the afternoon he's gardening and um, yeah, he has a really rich life and maybe he'll go to special Olympic surfing. We're looking into that with one of his instructors. Nice. Yeah. How did that come about? The surfers healing. How did that tall start yeah. that? I love that organization from what I've learned from you. Yes, I know. I have to hand it out and it's all began with surfers healing Izzy Paskowitz who started it with his wife Danielle and um Garrett McNamara who's the big wave um extreme big wave surfer pro surfer out in Hawaii he's the really the one that got me into surfers healing I emailed him when he rode the biggest wave in Portugal the 100 foot mm -hmm. wave there's a there's a series on HBO right now that shows Garrett McNamara and um he was on an interview live in Portugal after he wrote it. So I emailed him 10 minutes later. I didn't know who he was. I yeah. was in awe of the wave. The reason I emailed him is because he said in the interview, other than riding these big waves, he loves to take kids with disabilities surfing. And I went, oh, because Wyatt had been Light asking. Light bulb goes on, yeah. yeah. And because Wyatt had been asking me to surf, every time he saw a surfer at the beach, 
he would point and show me and say, I want to do that. I'm, I'm like that. If my kids either are Lucy or Wyatt have a dream, I'm going to go find it. So Garrett said, let's get you on surfers healing, pick a spot and I'll meet you guys there in one of the states where they went. And so again, this is how I put Lucy into it. I said, Lucy, you pick where you want to go. And she picked Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, because a friend she knew was living there and moved there. So that's where we went. Right when we got to surface healing, man, when Wyatt got on that board with the first surfer, um, and then, you know, they don't have much time each on it. Mm -hmm. One of the pro surfers came over and said, he's got it. He's got the natural waterman in him. He's mm. totally could be a surfer. And that was great because since then, the whole surfing community, I've never met a surfer that hasn't taken Wyatt out and been stoked. And yeah, said, it's the right word for that. Yeah. yeah. And to be with him and seeing his love and the, the surfer this week said to me, Lisa, why it's completely different on the water than in land. He, we have mature conversations. He matures up. He doesn't do that repetitive talk on land and or any kind of whiny stuff. And I said, I know. So my, my next thing is a farm on the beach. And there you go. That's right. The surfing farm. Yeah, we got to find that. Find or create that I'm farm where they it. can surf. Yeah, it's funny because my grandsons, we as we mentioned before we were recording earlier, we live 30 or 40 minutes from the beach. And so they'll get down to the beach quite a bit with my daughter, with their mom. And she's a single mom. She went through divorce. So she's, you know, she has the dad around, but not, you know, on a daily basis. And so she's doing a lot of things with the boys and the beach is one of those things. And they love it. They love playing in the sand right. and in the water. And I'm sure oh, that they, great. yeah, it's, it's, there's something healing about the earth and about just nature that just brings out something in all of us that may not exist in the day to day in the city in this where the skyscrapers are or you know even yeah. in our neighborhoods where we live you started an organization called right this way um how did that come about and i've i've learned a little bit about that you've done so much i'm just so so many people would have as you talked about earlier just curled up in a ball and i'm sure you had days where you did you haven't that's not that's not how i would describe you and i'm sure that people who know you really well wouldn't describe you that way either you're you're constantly thriving and striving to do things for your kids and to improve the people around you and that's what right this way has done can you talk about that a little bit yeah i'll tell you and just one quick thing is that i i sort of mentioned this i never i i haven't wanted to feel like a victim in this with 9 11 yeah. and i think that's like the crucial part like i never went why me why me i don't I, I really said, why not me? When, when after it happened, when I heard there were other people in my town, I did feel like a little, okay, it's, um, I'm not alone. There's other people I can connect with that, you know, where husbands were missing or whatever. But I, um, I think when any of us stay in that, why me, why me, you can shrink and go into it. It's really, why not me? None of mm -hmm. us, like my friend, Richard, when he was injured in that accident, I did go, why him? Why him? <laughs> you know, because he was 16. I mean, he had a life. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you, you're not looking. I think when you say, why me? You're looking for the meaning of why something happened and you never are going to get the answer. I'm never going to get the answer why Richard is paralyzed, but the answers I will get is how is he surviving this all these years, 42 mm -hmm. years as quadriplegic, he's my hero you can look to someone and see what, you know, and he'd be a great guy to interview. Like, yeah, absolutely. So I can, well, yeah, yeah. We get caught in that victimness and, and we can't really, I I've used and I want to get back to the question about right this way, but I've, I've talked with people over the last few months, especially about COVID and you look at 
there's been so much growth and there's been so many wonderful stories and relationships that have been forged as a result and opportunities that people have had. We've, we've been blessed as a family with a lot of things that wouldn't have happened if not for COVID. That doesn't mean I'm looking at COVID and saying, wow, what a blessing COVID's been. That's not my point. But would I, would I, if, if I could flip a switch and everything that's happened since March of 2020 was going to happen in the world and in, in the country and in our communities and my company and my personal life, or I couldn't flip the switch and none of those things would happen. It's a tough question sometimes because I look at the growth. You, if you could flip a switch, you'd bring Stephen back in a heartbeat, of course. Yes. But the growth and the lessons that you've had and that Wyatt and Lucy have had that wouldn't have happened Right. I'm sure it would have been better if their dad was here and your right. husband was here, obviously, yes. but there's just different lessons that we learn. And, and you have that attitude that I see that as someone who says, okay, well, I got all these lemons. What am I going to do with this? I can, you know, they can be sour and I can hate them or I can make lemonade out of them. Like the old adage says, and, so back to, look, yeah. It's just like a, you, you can't, you don't have the power to control what happened, but you have the power. Like when I said, react or respond. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big reactor in a lot of things. I'm so emotional and I usually get really emotional and then I get that out of the way. And I, that's the trouble. And, you know, Steven knew that in me, he was like, calm down. When we're talking hmm. to the school board about getting one extra help, you can't be emotional. You gotta be right. professional and he's, he's your baby, but be careful. So, I mean, I've, you know, and believe me, I've had extensive, extensive, trauma work with an expert in post-traumatic stress. So it's not like I'm just- You I'm just are that one who just figured it out, yeah. No, not at all. I mean, Dr. Richard Guild has helped me and I've saw him twice a week for many, many years. I still call him for my booster shots in the sense that I asked <laughs> yeah. him like, hey, I'm going through this, he knows me well. So I'm not saying that, I'm talking extensive, extensive work of feeling the feelings of my loss, of the pain, of the terror, of the loneliness, of the aloneness. And really what his goal was, I want you to find the new relationship with yourself, Lisa, so that you never feel lonely. You might feel alone. Mm -hmm. And I really kind of fell in love with myself yeah. so that I don't feel lonely. But yeah, I am alone when I have to do things with Wyatt alone or Lucy or get Lucy to college and worry about her, you know, is she going to drink? Is she, you know, things like that. There's no one in the game with me. You know, if someone's willing to do the work to wrestle with those emotions, shake hands with those things, rather than distract it by gambling or drinking or doing drugs or overeating, you know, or things like that, which is so easy for us to all self-anesthetize somehow. Yeah. I mean, he really taught me so much about that. So that's a whole nother, you know. No, that's thing. great. That's a great lesson there. One that's of the things great. I was going to ask you, you've already sort of answered. And what would you tell somebody that's going through grief, whether... I'm sure there are still family members from 9-11 that are feeling the pain today as real as they did 20 years ago because maybe they didn't deal with it or they don't have that personality or that whatever it is you have and others have to be able to con yeah, conquer is the wrong word, but to be able to thrive through this. You haven't conquered it. It's always going to be there. Yeah. And yeah, it doesn't mean that I, you know, like I said, on days when I feel very alone that I these emotions come up, but now I wrestle them. I don't push them away or distract them. And I think when the kids were so young after it happened, I was just so consumed with them and why it's disability that I didn't have time to feel it on my own. So really what he afforded me in his office, and he said it to me, you're going to sit in here for two. I, I reached out to him. He also said that never happens. Usually someone <laughs> said to him or something, 
but I looked for someone who was an expert in post-traumatic stress and um, because I felt like I wasn't right. I felt like I was a little too irritable, like say when there was a leak or something like that, like little things that were no big deal, but he said that was very common in unresolved grief. Hmm. So you might get a little more agitated at these little, little itty bitty things that could happen yeah. around the house or just when you're not there. And, um, you know, I challenged him on a lot of these. I go, really, really? Mm -hmm. But, he, you know, he said, you haven't dealt with it. I've dealt with it. I've been angry. I've been like working with the kids. And he goes, you haven't sat with it yourself. So he made me in his office sit with it. But he also, before they came home from school, said I needed to spend little bits of time and gradually increase it without a magazine without the TV on or anything. And you know how hard that is? Yeah. One of the first times I did that and sat there, I literally popped from my seat and I called him. He was in session with someone else. He called hmm. me back. I go, what happened? He said, that's post-traumatic stress. While you're allowing it to come, my body was holding so much in that I was just sitting and allowing my thoughts and my feelings. And, you know, like I said, I have more worries than most as a mother of a special needs child. And then mm -hmm. my backstory of being abandoned and all of these other things that we, he and I had to sort through. So, you know, he said, most people have a backpack of problems. I had a barn full. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, had, you had a backpack store. Yeah. yeah. And he goes, we're, we're, we're going to be um, lessening it to the backpack. But anyway, so right this way. Yeah. <laughs> Great story. It was President Obama in that meeting that ignited a fire into me because I, prior to that, to that meeting with him in 2011, for about a year, I thought maybe I'll go back and work with kids because it was one thing I knew I was good at. It was connecting with kids and helping kids who had, especially kids who had problems. I worked with kids in the inner city before I had my own and I was a school counselor and in a program with kids from Harlem. And I really started missing it. And I really thought I would never, ever, ever go back to work in that, in any capacity because my hands were so full with my own children and with Wyatt's situation and with my, my loss and my grief. And, you know, it's exhausting. Yeah. So, um, but I started to dabble in applying for school counselor jobs. And what I was discovering is they weren't the same as in New York city. I really just wanted to sit with kids who were having problems. I didn't want to do scheduling or, anything like that. And then um, one of the interviews I went to, she said, I have a spot for you maternally, but I'm not taking you and you'd be awesome. And I went, why? Hmm. And she said, because you'll sh shine a light on my other counselors and they won't like you and it won't work. And I go, well, what are you talking about? She said, because you've got, you just have too much that you're going to bring to the kids and do too many things. And I was like <laughs> a little insulted, but also she said, this is a compliment, <laughs> but right. it's not going to, um, they're going to resent you coming in. So I said, well, what am I going to do? And she just really didn't know what I was going to do and sent me on my way. And then I had the meeting with, and I went to a lot of other interviews and I never got hired because of budget cuts or this, and, you know, because I, my tier and pay would have been higher than a, a newbie and blah, blah, blah. So when I met Obama, <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to have a few minutes one-on-one -on -one with him. Hmm. And so he just came in the room and it was about 50, 11 families. And most of them were like, bit like the president of the 9-11 museum, Howard Lutnick, the CEO, you know, people in positions of 9-11. And I was, I guess, filling the void of the, hmm. 
you know, the regular folk, I don't know. And um, what a lovely, one of the pilot's wives, who's lovely, who's a friend of mine now from that meeting. Anyway, so when he, he said, you guys, I'm just gonna walk around the room, give you each a hug and have you tell me your story. And that was key. Cause I don't think I've ever heard anybody ever a teacher, anybody asked me what my story was hmm. like, you know, maybe to you today or something, but, but right. really I was just like that, that phrase, cause this has to do with right this way. That's like what it was about. So I was yeah. like, wow, the president is going to take out time and listen to everybody in the room and my story. Hmm. Alisa, you better think of something quick. Like, what yeah. am I going to tell him? What's my story? Yeah. Yes. And, um, cause I have a big story, but then, um, he gave me a hug and then I, he just said, who did you lose? Even though he knew he's very, you know, he knew, mm-hmm. he said, tell me who you lost, um, Stephen. And, uh, I said, and I only had a picture of Lucy and Wyatt with me. And I just showed him a picture and I said, why does special needs Lucy, they're twins. And I had his book with me, um, dreams for my father, which I looked like, I didn't want to look like a groupie. Like I was, you know, <laughs> Jackson Brown and I had the album for when there you go. I had it with me and he said, do you want me to sign it for them? And I said, would you please? And he wrote um, to Lucy and Wyatt, dream big dreams, Barack Obama. And I said, can I tell you a dream of mine? And he said, yes. I said, just want to be an ambassador to children. I just love working with kids and I can't get a job as a school counselor. I keep applying. And I'm thinking he's going to go, well, give me the uh, superintendent's Yeah, who, who do I call, right? Yeah. I'll call. No, no, no. He did something better. Um, which was also like frustrating to me only because I'm, I have insatiable curiosity and, and, and a need to know right away. He just said, Lisa, your spirit is too big for one building. Think of something else to do. And I was like, wow. 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 Of course I wanted to sit there and have coffee with him and really yeah. analyze it, like the coolest mentor ever in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, he seemed by asking a powerful question or telling me something like that, you know, just giving me a question to ponder is what I mean. And that's what I did. I went back and really thought about it and thought about that, like, tell your story and what better, what did I not get when I was a kid? I never got to tell anyone my story when my dad mm-hmm. died. Never got to tell that, never got to tell anyone what my brother was going through before he died. And let me create a hip little studio where kids come in. And how do I do that? You know, like what, mm-hmm. why would kids show up there? Why, what parents going to send their kid for that? And I'm, it's not therapy. And another friend, Eileen in town said to me that her son, just in a different story, not even related to Obama said, you know, my son, wrote this essay, college essay, wanted to show it to his guidance counselor. And she said she didn't have time for it. And I went, I would never do that as a counselor. Right. I would do that as a teacher or as a person. And I, so anyway, right this way was born, like let kids take those college essay questions that they're supposed to write when they apply. And then they could come in and talk to me about it. And, and I'm not an English teacher and I wasn't going to edit and like fix it for them so it looked good. I just wanted their, them to find their voices yeah. and fi- discover themselves and kind of give a little bit of what Obama gave to me that day. And, you know, and just what people like you are doing, listening to me, my therapist did listening. I, I have to say the greatest thing is, yes, of course, kids have written fantastic essays on cool things like their first wallet or their favorite candy or something like seems so small, but these big, beautiful Every kid I've ever worked with has an ah moment when mm-hmm. they're talking to me. 
and that is just so great. And then they they kind of go off to college a little more mature and they feel like they know themselves more and it's a little gift that they they can take with them in their suitcase. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard you say it's sort of that, like I use the hashtag for my pod, podcast, everyone has a story. And when we get in tune with what that story is, it gives us a confidence level and it gives us sort of a, okay, my life hasn't been just a series of, of events that have nothing to do with each other. They're, they're linked together. And I mean, I look at just my career and, you know, I haven't had, you know, knocking on wood here. I haven't had the path that you've had. I haven't lost, you know, I lost my mom four years ago, but she was 88 years old. She lived a good life. You know, we've had loss on my wife's side of the family in the last couple of years. Some of it was sudden, but nevertheless, you know, when we can piece the, the, the events of our lives together, and to where we are now, I think it makes a lot of sense. I look at your life. I look at, you know, you met Steven, this dream guy, you know, and love, you know, I, I, I think he and I would have been friends. I love golf and sports. And, you know, some of the things yeah. I've read about him, it's like, that's the kind of guy I would have hung out with. Yes. You know, absolutely. I'm 57. I think he's a little older than I right. am now. He'd be about 60 now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I think that you help these kids recognize that the, the journey they're on is, is perfect for them may not have been a perfect journey, but it's perfect for them. And look, we all want to be seen, heard, and understood. Exactly. And if, if I can give that to kids for those moments, I, that gets me out of my shit, my grief, my worry yeah. for quiet. And the same thing, like you're listening to me, you're seeing me, you're here, you're witnessing something in me. Dr. Guile did it for me. My own daughter does it to me mm -hmm. all the time when we talk now, because she's mature and, and she's just, grown so much and it's such a gift that she can kind of listen to me now in a different level than she could when she was eight or 14 sure. and you know hopefully i did that for lucy and wyatt um and we we all want to be witnessed and i think what i lost that day the most was like i said at the beginning of this you know he got me stephen got me he witnessed me it was a very um wonderful love affair it wasn't long enough you yeah. know but i'm so glad that i got it because yeah. it existed and i saw it and you know, a lot of people ask me now why I was meeting new people on the beach. You haven't remarried. I said, I don't really need to be remarried, but I definitely am open to falling in love and being, and I have, I've had in these 20 yeah. years, um, different things. I was very careful not to move a man into the home because of two small children, especially a girl and also how it would be received by Wyatt because he can attach easily. And right. I wanted to keep that. I was entitled to my private life, but I wanted to keep my, my priority was getting them to where they need to be. And that's why when I did write this way too, I was very conscious that I didn't want to be away from them or out or, you know, commuting to a job and not home. They were part of it. Wyatt got in charge of the candy. I had like a candy counter for the kids cool. and Wyatt fill it up and do it. And Lucy was heading to college. She was in eighth grade when I started it and thought, this is great. She used to sit in the groups and she wrote her essay and she's become a fabulous writer. I could never, I'm not even a good writer. <laughs> she writes so well. I don't know what it's from. I guess it was the practice. She kind of really heard all the little tips I give to my students. And, yeah. and then, you know, now is sort of my time because they're both really settled in their own lives and it's now time for me to do. Yes. Yeah kind of passions and things. Well, it know? sounds like you've been doing that for a long time. Now you're doing improv. Talk about your how <laughs> that journey into improv in Second City, Chicago and, and all of that yeah. great stuff. This is like the most exciting part of my life right now, I think, <laughs> because 
I always, always wanted to be an actress when I was little. It's something that my mom um, wanted to kind of nurture, but wasn't sure how. I mean, I never had illusions that I would be like Meryl Streep. It was more like SNL. I wanted to do kind of ske sketches and, and become a different character all the time sure. and get that thrill of making people laugh. And so um, I think, though, I didn't have it in me, the kind of... Um, armor you need to audition and get rejected in that or I didn't have a mentor helping me because I was living in New York City and I was going to Broadway shows and I was making my mom stand at the stage door and greet everyone who came out I didn't care if you did the lights or the curtains or especially if you were the actor that I saw on the stage but I had to talk to everybody I just felt at home and in love every time I went into a theater and I don't think anybody in my life took it very seriously other than me <laughs> yeah. so that was another thing of right this way like what is your dream follow your bliss like same with Lucy and Wyatt like I don't I understood my mom was a dean at a Barnard college you know <laughs> I, I think she just was like education education I think in retrospect she should have just sent me to like LaGuardia School of the Arts we were in New York <laughs> City anyway and let her let her go but I think I also needed more self-assurance and like who cares what people think of me you know I, I think when you're abandoned at birth, you you grow up knowing, you know, the, the biological mother abandoned you. You you come into this world in a very different way. So rejections are a little more painful. Um, and anyway, so um, I started doing something local improv and then when the pandemic hit, I went, oh no, I go, I have to do this. This is my love. And Second City from Chicago was doing it. And I've been with the group since October and we call ourselves the soul mateys. Everyone mm. is in their twenties. I'm the oldest. Mm. Nice. So I was at first like, Oh no, are they, do they care? And actually one just, I'm helping him with his um, essay for his MFA program. He wants to be an actor. He's applying to mm. Yale and Juilliard. And another guy reaches out to me when he has questions and it's, what I love about theater too is that bond you make with your, with the people in your ensemble. Sure. So I'm moving to Boston and I'm going to do it live there. And uh, I would go to Chicago. It's a little too far from, yeah. you know, kids, but um, I don't know. I want to be just like that. Like, I feel like dreams are dreams. Maybe I'll be the oldest cameo person on SNL or why not? Right. Like, I, I, you know, it, someone it's will at some point. Why not? you? Right. <laughs> exactly. It goes back to you. Why not me? Well, there yeah. is the youngest guy that was ever on as a 9-11 kid, Pete Davidson. So I could go, I could be the oldest 9 there you, go. you know. But anyway, yeah. I just, um, I just love, that's what I mean, this curiosity. I'm so thankful that I've had it since I've been born, that I still feel excited about life and the world and what's going to happen. And I, you know, still get worried and horribly affected um, when I see any kind of, um, tragedy you know i'm almost too emotional too i i carry a lot with me you know oh, yeah you've had a lot to carry <laughs> you've got that barn not the backpack on yeah shoulders are we're trying to Getting relax pretty strong yeah, yeah. How, right. if you could sum up how your life experiences and i know we've just done that for the last hour but i you've probably thought of this too from tough trials as a child to obviously losing steven on 9 11 to 
the challenges of raising a special needs child in addition to, you know, two kids. I mean, you've got Lucy as well, who there's challenges in raising just a, a child in and of itself. Mm. Is there, you know, everyone has a story. You've said that, I've said it. Um, I'm not gonna ask you to tell me your story because you just did. But <laughs> what would what would be just kind of a, a big aha or big life lesson that you would say, wow, with all of these experiences, this is who I am, or this is what I've learned? Um, I, I think certainly one of my taglines would be life laced with loss, but that sounds like, a you know, there's a lot of loss, but, and then, you know, life, laced, I don't know, laced with um, lessons and, and good things. I don't know how to, I have to like try to work yeah. on that. Um, really maybe sort of, I have some of the kids in my Write This Way have challenged me in writing a, my own answer to some essay questions. And I have, um, and it, it's, I, for some reason, the word resilience does bother mm -hmm. me because like I said, just because you went through something doesn't mean you're resilient. Yeah. It means the hard work you do. And I, I stress that point, even with Tuesday's children, I'm on the family advisory board because people think children are resilient. They'll be okay. They're going to be fine. And I don't mean just Lucy and Wyatt. I mean, all kids, all kids I've worked with. When I listen to a kid tell me something that's happened to them, when they tell it, then they haven't felt it concerns me. Or when there's kids who, you know, think like I've said at the beginning, a feeling won't pass. Like someone broke up with me or I can't go back into school because, you know, um, they're embarrassed about something. It's so important that they talk, tell their story. It's in that telling the story you get through the grief. So um, I even have kids write essays that they're never going to submit to anyone but themselves and maybe, and usually to me, mm -hmm. so that I can talk to them. So I had a kid whose mother was, you know, drinking a lot every day and it really affected her and wrote the essay out. Now it's not the one she's going to submit to college, but she needed to write that out to have space to write the one. And there was a lot of pain. Yeah. And that's happened with a lot of kids that I work with. And so there's a lot of um, moments of trying to help them you know, because the, the teen brain is different than ours, you know, that's why <laughs> suicide or something in a teen, they, they don't have the life experience to know that. Oh, all, that all emotions hard. will pass, like you just said earlier. Yeah. yeah. And, and things. So um, I take that really serious, that part of uh, anything when I'm working, whenever I've worked with kids that um, they're so precious and, you know, fortunately for Lucy and Wyatt, that each step, there was a lot of sacrifice in my, my life on, especially on Lucy's part from ninth grade to 12th grade. I didn't go out with anyone. I used to go out all the time and accept dates, go out with my girlfriends and parties and everything. And then my friends were like, where are you? And I was home with her because that's when all that drinking and stuff. And then she, I said, you can't go to a house when her parents not home. And she goes, yeah. you're ruining my social life. I was like, <laughs> yeah, that head. was my plan. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But, but, I was going to let her out. It wasn't overprotectiveness, but um, she's since thanked me because she said I would have ended up terribly. Now, does it mean she drank in college? Of course, yeah. but the brain is still developing and that's such a crucial time. And it was wonderful times for our relationship to really grow. And unfortunately, you know, she didn't have a lot of friendships in the sense that she went, she did prefer being with me. And then I was a little like, oh boy, I don't want her to, you know, she went to college, you know, and, and I, people have argued with me, like, 
well, in college, you know, everyone gets, you know, they get through it, they're gonna drink. Yes, but she had all these seeds in a toolbox that I sent her with, an emotional toolbox, hopefully. And does it mean, did she party? Did she hook up with a guy or whatever? You know, it's yeah. just that those were gonna become her decisions, but I wasn't gonna let her run wild at 14. Right. And I um, And it, it meant a great sacrifice on my own personal life, but it was just, you know, that's what I had to do. That's what I signed up for being a parent. You know, I didn't, yeah, exactly. And, you know, was going to show up. And, and that's what I meant at the same time, um, doing all I did for Wyatt. But um, yeah, so it's just an interesting part of that that I think I obviously would have done if Stephen were alive, but it became more so because I felt she had a void that I didn't want her to fill chronically with boys and booze, and, you know, or yeah. other things that would have been so accessible because, you know, I used to, I talked to the teens a lot about, you know, why do you reach for that drink or that joint in the first place? And I could talk to them all openly. And it's usually because they're feeling something uncomfortable. Like I'm awkward in this crowd. I don't know what to say. My parents aren't home all afternoon and I'm outside mm -hmm. walking around anyway. It doesn't matter whether it's a city, your parents, so it's a common thing. And then I just would wanted to talk to Lucy about it, you know? Yeah. There's a void there that they're trying to fill sometimes. And yeah, it's easy to see what that void would be. I mean, they were four when they lost their dad. I was. Hey, and it doesn't mean in college, <laughs> I, you know, we drank way too much. And yeah. you know, I, I stuck to beer mostly, but I mean, it was a giant waste of time. Mm -hmm. And course i thought it was the most fun and freedom yeah letting our hair down and i'm entitled yes. and nothing's going to happen to me and yeah and yeah. you know i think in the back of my head i was always thinking of my friend rich that something could happen i was I, he always said to me before his accident you were always cautiously a risk taker what does that hmm. mean cautiously I mean, I was, a risk i like but, that yeah but i was always kind of worried about something happening so you know, yeah. but um so it doesn't mean you know um I've had my own demons and my own struggles, but that's what I said. It all came back to Dr. Guild of talking all of this through with him and going back to everything that, you know, every trauma in my life or whatever. And, you know, there's, there's a wonderful life. There's possibilities. And that's yeah. the thing if we choose, you know? Yeah. Well, you're a, you're a great shining example to me because so many people would take the, experiences that, that you've been through and and wouldn't have the positive outlook and the humor and the and that you know not lightheartedness you take things very seriously but you know when to be lighthearted and when not to be and and i i appreciate that i i learned a lot just in this last little bit of time with you about just how to look at some of the challenges and struggles in my own life and maybe see them a, a little bit different more differently i think of the term silver lining a lot when i hear you talk you know there's these dark clouds and those are obvious but you tend to look at the silver linings more than you see the dark clouds. And so I, I appreciate that. And I think people listening to this today will, will hear that and feel that and as well. I, I do go in and spend time in those dark clouds, but I am, um, yeah. and I get lost. And then I realize, you know, you have to shake hands with it and say, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's hard to do when you're in it. And if you don't have a partner, like that's what I miss about not being with someone right now, having like a boyfriend now that can, if they're, one that is on that level that can remind you of it. I think that's when I feel alone, like, cause I can, I can get in great despair about why it, or I think something, you know, or something changes in it, or just like what you're going through the worry of your grandchildren. It's, 
it's so horrible <laughs> that, um, and then I reach out to my other special needs parents that I know and try to, you know, get grounded again. And it's going to be, or somebody at Triform at Wyatt's program. And yeah. like, it's okay. It's really okay. We're all here. We're all, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be all right because you can, um, it's very frightening that there isn't enough for the special needs community when they become adults. So um, it's legitimate. And I'm trying to help with that as best I can. Yeah. Well, well, on behalf of uh, a grandpa here who has a couple of special <laughs> needs grandsons, thank you. I appreciate the work you're doing and, and the eyes that you've opened for me as well as other opportunities that are out there. When you've talked with uh, two last questions here, when you've talked with Lucy and Wyatt, but I'm, Lucy, and I'm, I'm going to go that route first because you've acknowledged you can have more of the adult yes. conversations with her than yeah. you could with Wyatt, but with both, when you've talked with them about their dad and you've talked to other people or tell me, I've, I never met Stephen, you know, how, how would you, how do you describe him to keep him alive in their own, in their own minds and in their own hearts? And how do you remember him to keep him alive in your heart as well? Great question. Um, Wyatt has a photographic memory, so he certainly has his, Lucy has some, um, but not more from the pictures or stories that people tell her. And a great question. And I've never idolized him. I've never put him on a pedestal. Um, and I've said like marriages are hard, Lucy. Mm -hmm. Like it was never, I don't want you to think that I had this like great guy came in. Yes, he pursued me and he chased me and that was fun. But, and, and at the beginning and all of that, and he got me and we were mm -hmm. very connected. But I said, you know, he, I probably drove him crazy on certain things that I was going through, but he was very volatile and he had times like he would overreact at something and then he was fine. And then I wasn't, I was like, what was that mm -hmm. about? And it was yeah. over something. You're left in the wake now, right? Yeah. Yes. Which I always felt was sort of unaddressed stuff from his, you know, without trying to be, and, and he kind of knew that. I remember him saying he realized that he needed some therapy because he had some stuff and he had had a lot of loss right prior to his death. His dad had died when I, just after, just before I met him. And then his mom died a year before Stephen did. So, and she was sick for a while and he had lost his job in between. So, you know, he was dealing with, you know, imagine being, you know, as you're a man, you know, trying to keep an income, especially now for kids, one of which special needs, lost my job as Wall Street, that would happen. You know, you know, he's going to get a job. He knew it. But, you know, in that moment, you don't. And he's panicking. And his mom was really sick. So I was very, you know, empathetic and had great compassion for him and tried to help him. And I have always said to Lucy, you know, the coolest thing about him was whenever we were on different kind of waves going through it, the other one was there to, you know, I mm -hmm. could really, really help him through his mom's thing when, and really get him to talk about it. And then when I would have a moment of really worrying about Wyatt, I could weep on his shoulder. We were one night, we, we went out for date nights every Thursday, my mom and stepfather would come and we'd always go to like a movie and he'd go, great, a chick flick, okay, mm -hmm. I'll sit for a while, then we'll go out and get a beer and a burger, you know? Yeah. But I remember one time we parked in the parking lot allowed it and it's like because i was so frightened we, we that's when we didn't know what was going on with Wyatt and um but I said you know there were things like I have no idea if I would still be married to him or not um 
because when I watch my other friends go through things, even if they're still with someone, some are not happily married and they're together, some have divorced, you know, I wonder what that trajectory would be for me. Yeah. Um, I knew he would never let me go easily. He kind of just, <laughs> this. Yeah. my mom always said, he loved you that little bit more, which is really good. A man should love the woman a little bit more because then they won't stray. And I don't there know how to do that is. But, but he, truth uh, there, sure. But I do think, and I've thought of this, and I said it to Lucy recently when she was here at the beach, we were walking. And I said, you know, if I met your dad now, say I didn't know him and I was just at a party and someone introduced us and he could somehow... I told him everything I've been through. Like I lost a husband in 9-11. He would be like, oh my God, you're incredible. I'm, I have to marry you because he already thought with my losses mm -hmm. that I went through a lot. Oh my God, the person I've become in these 20 years is yeah. just, I was a baby then. So I think he, you know, that's, it's not like any guy has to compete with Steven or the memory of him, but I need a guy that can recognize my story. <laughs> Sure. And see what she did. Not that we have to talk about it. I just want to have fun. I want, you know, let's go out to dinner. Let's travel. Let's. Right. Um, I, I think it has to be a guy that the same way that just, you know, and then I want to be that way. I want to get his story. I want a guy mm -hmm. that's like wants to tell me his story. So back to your question, like Lucy, the wonderful thing about Lucy right now is. So she did all that grief work in high school, like I said, with me and with Dr. Guild. He was unusual in that he said, because we tried some other therapists with her, one made a therapeutic mistake in this and Dr. Guild said, I I'm gonna do it. And usually that's not wise because a lot of therapists can make a mistake and say something because he was treating me also. Um, but you know, he was the head of an inpatient uh, unit in Patterson, New Jersey for 25 years. I mean, the man is dealt with and seen everything, addiction and traumas and, and many things. But um, I have to say it was the greatest thing that Lucy did for herself by going to him because she got to tell her story to him and he really heard her. And uh, like I said, it's um, she's really okay about it. She's like, you know, mom, there was a period of time where Yes, and uh, Wyatt and I were walking on the beach this morning. I heard this kid going, daddy, 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 about 500 times to his father. You know, his little kid went on the beach. Yeah. And 20 years ago, 19 years ago, that made my skin crawl. I used to go, I wanted to go, shut up. Tell your kid not to say that because right. my kids didn't understand, especially Wyatt, that dad, he thought it was his daddy. He was turning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, daddy's not, his, daddy's not his name. Daddy's, yes. yeah. Like, you know what I mean? So they thought it used to, get to them on a playground or this now it's like we could walk on the beach and there's oh there's another kid enjoying their dad and I think Lucy um really you know she used to hate 9-11 anniversaries hate the media not want anything I mean hate it like then you know at the 10th anniversary she said I'll read the names I want to read I want to say my dad's name on hmm. on the microphone and, and say it she did it and then she was like, oh, well, okay. Then, you know, now she's got a wonderful boyfriend. She's in grad school. She lives with two great roommates in Boston. I think if anything, she'll probably go on a run with her boyfriend and maybe donate the money to Tuesday's children. They have a, a virtual like 5K or she'll just do something. Every day she's doing something that he would be so thrilled with. Cool. So that's the best way to honor him, you know, like Lucy said to me the other day when she came down here, 
said, what do you think daddy would think of the surfing? I go, he would never would have occurred to him. He was a football player. He was yeah. baseball. like, this is, but I said, it's probably the coolest sport for Wyatt because these really loving surfers, surfers are just the greatest people. I mean, if, if I was in my twenties and knew I was hanging out with all these. Yeah, surfers, exactly. Yeah. Little did you know then, right? I was afraid to approach them when I was on the beach, you know, yeah. when, when I was younger, they have embraced my son in every state, every beach, um, whether they're pro or novice. And there are four on this beach in Narragansett that have, are really like his friend now. And um, I think, you know, like we're sort of honoring him every day by just living the best lives we can live and, and find contentment and joy and laughter. And, you know, so I think, um, is that answering your question? I just- Yeah, no, I love that. I, I, I loved how real you were too. I didn't expect you to go into certain areas there and I'm really glad you did. That's- yeah, I've needed an adult to talk to. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's right. Well, you know, and it's good because, uh, you know, we do tend to glamorize people after they're gone. And we do tend to say, oh, everything was perfect. And we all, I mean, I went through a divorce when I was 27, 28 years old. Right. And obviously, because it ended, things weren't good. But I don't remember the fights. I don't remember. I mean, I, I know why we divorced. Right. And don't get, you know, don't, it's not like I forgot. But I mean, I don't feel the pain and the emotional damage that I felt in my 20s because of that. But I don't sit here and dwell on the great stuff either. So, hey, that was a part of my life that turned me into who I am and got me more prepared, I think, to be a better husband now. You know, 28 years now, my wife and I have been married and I'm far from a perfect husband and she'll be the first to tell you that, but so will I. But, um, you know, the the tough times that I'm sure you and Steven had, you still remember them, but you don't, you know, you don't over glamorize and say, Oh, it's just this perfect marriage. And I appreciate how real you were in your, in your answer. That yeah. was pretty cool. One of, one of my, a couple of nine 11 widows I know I did have really incredible love stories and great things. And I don't deny in that, you know, and I love hearing those stories. And like I said, I, I, you know, he gave me such a good foundation for these kids along with maybe what I was born with, what my mother who raised me and father, you know, so fortunate to be adopted into the best parenting situation for me um, because the biological mother, I have since met her and had no nurturing and wouldn't be able to handle a baby, let alone me. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I come with a lot, as you can see. <laughs> um, but, um, and that was the beauty in Steven. He could handle that. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think a lot of guys could just handle this i'm a you know i'm a force and i'm feisty and i have a lot of um passion and this proactiveness like of fighting for the rights of others you know is a I, I come with a different package so i'm so thankful that i met him because it, it gave me like i said to lucy you know you, you go through a lot of different relationships and then the one you're like why did i go out with him or you know mm -hmm. some of us what was that? But that's what dating is. And that's what just learning and bumping into people and seeing. And, you know, the night I bumped into him, I was on a date with someone else and he made it very clear you know, that you're with the was, wrong guy. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, he was the wrong guy and he was right. And, you know, um, that it was the wrong guy. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I, it took me time to figure out that, yeah, he was the right one for me right then. And so he gave me so much. And yeah. I think I'm, in a lot of ways, why I'm doing so well is because I had such a great foundation from him. He was a life yeah. force in me. And, you know, I 
I do call on him a lot, especially when I walk on the beach, you know, just like Wyatt, you know, I'm, and especially in the early years and early days after I would, you know, I did get some of his remains back and I would go to the grave and I would sit there and go, are you watching me? Are you on a cloud watching? And if you're on a cloud watching, like I need help, yeah. you know, yeah. and a little help down here. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I needed a lot of help because I needed to make sure that these kids were going to be okay. And I was very scared at certain points. So I'm not diminishing it in our talk that I, right. I was, it was never easy. Did I wake up and go, yay for the day? When I'm saying that I was always curious, but then I was always like, oh my God, like after, like I've got to get, you know, it was like putting on a Broadway show every single day without any of your helpers. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I felt like, you know, there, there was going to be a good outcome, you know, and I will say though, the first 18 months, by the way, which is important in this story, every night when I fell asleep, that was more hard. That was harder than the waking up because when I woke up, it was like a new day for me mm -hmm. falling asleep. All I thought about was him being trapped in the towers and like how, how long was he alive? And I got information from some New York times, a reporter and some of the guys that, in other offices who were on the phones with the guys there. And I was trying to piece it together. And that's something, you know, PTS does, but you'll, I would never know those final moments, but I had a video playing for the first 18 months every night when I was falling asleep. So that was really painful. Yeah. Like I'd finally get quiet, get the kids down, you know, and then you were just like. Your mind I, had nothing else to do now other than just to kind of go there. Yeah. What did you, what, what details that you can share? Were there details that you found out about in his last moments or were these just things that you just hypothetically, they, they assume? No. So like I said, I'm a need to know person. I think this mm -hmm. has coming to do with being abandoned. I wanted to know what happened to my birth mother and birth father and like the whole story. And it's back to this whole person. I am the storytelling and, you know, that was a huge thing that Steven knew that I had to figure that out. And he was very, cool on helping me figure that out and whatever. But so, I mean, I asked the medical examiner questions that they said, Lisa, no one is asking us stuff like this. Hmm. And they weren't even wondering why. And like, meaning even I wanted to see his remains and they go, we cannot unwrap the remains. They're kind of been, uh, what's the word petrified? You know, they kept them, preserved them. Hmm. So they couldn't open them because of the smell and, you know, and like why. And, but I felt like Steven went through something and I had to, to know his story. Yeah. I knew his whole story. I wanted to know the death of him. So th these are very hard things to talk about. Like his remains, I wanted to know. And I got them at two different times with a two year span, which is hmm. weird and hard, really hard. And um, I, and then I, uh, there was Guy Dwyer at the New York Times. Um, there was a photo in the early weeks of 9-11 after it happened, the guys from Canner out hanging on the windows with all the smoke. And I asked him to enlarge it for me and send it to me so I could see if Stephen was there. And he wrote, sent it back to me and he said, Lisa, this is a really hard picture to look at. Are you sure? You know, um, here it is. Make sure you're with someone very thoughtful. Yeah. And I don't think it was Steven in it, but I was trying to even, um, I was thinking about the other guys and the women on, in the picture, there were only men, but I was thinking, what were they going through? E each man in that window hanging out for air looking yeah. were 
were had a family or friends and people who loved them and that they were not sure what was going on. And so it's not just Stephen. I mean, I really, really have great compassion for everybody. So when if I flip a channel and History Channel shows something and I'm listening to someone else's story, I'm like, that poor person. And then I go, yeah. wait, you were you're that was you too. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, but, I, but I can, you know, um so he was saying to me that um a lot of those guys didn't necessarily jump some got pushed mm -hmm. out of the windows like we think because think about it you're trying for air and, and people yeah are and fire as a fire as a is a storm is a, a a weather system in and of itself it can push people right. yeah yes to push so there was you know so there wasn't necessarily and um the medical examiner said to me with his remains that he he didn't fall or jump or anything because of how intact but certain bones were um, I mean, this is heavy stuff. I don't know if your viewers. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> okay. Though. Yeah. Thing before, um, and you see, I could talk about it now the way I'm picking up laundry because I've done <laughs> my work with Dr. Gao. Of course, when I went into his office, I wept boxes of tissues. I could barely speak of it. Like I had, I brought him the, um, you know, what they sent me to show me the remains and and where at the site they found it. <laughs> you know, so. And that's hard because some pieces are found way over here and on this street in New York and there, and then they tag it. I mean, you know, this isn't like when my father died of cancer. And even though I was never told he had cancer at such a young age, they didn't talk about it, but I got to see his body in the, in mm -hmm. the coffin and realized, okay, daddy's not here. It was horrible. Yes. This was just so, um, violent. Yes. Violent and cruel and all of those. Yes. Violent is, and, um, so it was so when I got the call the first time that he had the remains, I wanted to go to New York City and get his remains. And I wanted it. And, you know, I thought, why am I wanting to do that so much? And I just felt like he would do that for me. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't let my remains be in a, a truck for a while. He would have gone in. It's that need to know personality that yes. you have. And it's the need to know. And it's the need. It was the love story, too, of yeah. like, I'm not going to let you sit in a cooler for <laughs> but you know, whatever he wasn't aware, mm -hmm. but, um, so, you know, it was just like, those were the, like the, those are the things I can say now because Lucy knows everything now, um, before yeah. a few friends knew, and I didn't publicly talk about that, but I think people need to understand that. And, you know, the person who helped me the most with this is Paul Howell, who's since passed, but he lost his daughter in the Oklahoma bombings. Hmm. And, he was assigned to me from the Red Cross two weeks after 9-11 to come with me on the boat. We went down Manhattan to the smoldering site and he was just to sit with me. And I asked him all these powerful questions and like, what kind of remains do you get after a building goes down after a bomb? And he freely, and I said, if you don't want to answer it, he said, of course, with you, I'm going to, and it's going to be hard for me to tell you. And I he was the only person, even though everyone loved me, I was like, this is the person who gets what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And I'll always love him for coming from all the way to Oklahoma to get paired with me yeah. and to sit there. And when we went down to the site together, I was asking all the questions kind of coming up for once I shut up <laughs> and I was really quiet with him because we, we witnessed that together, the smoldering site. And I don't think um, my, my sibling-in-laws were with me too, but I spent all my time with him. And, um, it was just, I don't think if I 
if I didn't have him to help me process it, I think it would, I would have just, and that's what I would do for anyone who needs help in, in a similar situation, hopefully not, yeah. um, that I can just show up either, I can, I know how to be quiet <laughs> in someone's grief, <laughs> I'm talking a lot, yeah. but, or to, um, you know, to answer questions or whatever. So, you know, that, that's the, the cool thing about other tragedies that you have to be willing to also reach out of yourself, your own pain and show up for somebody else who might need you. And that's what Paul Howell did for me. You know, that's wonderful that you have had and have him and have those memories of him. Cause yeah, you might not have been prepared for what you were going to see and experience if you didn't at least, and his experience is unique to him and yours is unique right. to you. But you know, certainly there is a lot to the fact that someone else's experiences, I don't need to, experience certain things to, to know the good and the bad of it. I can, I can experience it through someone else. So I'm feeling, I, I appreciate you sharing this with me. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I would be classified as a need to know type of a person, but I have been that guy that almost every year on the anniversary I've gone in and I've read more stories about people that perished that day and, and watched the videos and tried to empathize a little bit for, from what you must've felt or others must've felt knowing they had loved ones there. And I can't even fathom it. So I appreciate you sharing with me because whether one person or 100,000 people listen to this interview, I'll have no idea, but um, it's helped me to to make it a little bit more real. You know, it was just, a, it was something that's in our history books now, 20 years later, yeah. that our kids, you know, your kids, if they didn't go through this, would have studied it and learned it in history in high school. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, right. they lived it and are living it and always will. But, uh, is there anything else about your experience? I, I have one final question I'm going to ask you here, and I can't believe we spent almost two hours together. And I know, I'm really sorry. Fast. No, I love it. No, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean in a very you good do way. A two part. A yeah, two well, part. I'm thinking we might, but um, um, just anything, I, any any experiences, any anything you'd like to share that we haven't talked about or that's on your mind or in your heart? I always ask the last question at the end of every interview, you know, what's in your heart? And so I guess I'll ask you that question now, but let that um, be kind of an open essay question for you well the quick thing before that is the last thing about Paul Howell who's um his he lost a child and that was far worse than what happened to me so the fact that he could show up for me made me realize also I was going to survive so that was yeah. the other important thing of him that I wanted to add but sure um you know what's in my heart I think you know life is hard and I wasn't taught that when I was a child even though I knew it being abandoned, I think you were taught it by experience, not by words. Yeah, I, I wish someone had told me that life is because I had a wonderful childhood. So when something kind of like my dad died, and then when Richard's accident, when they framed my childhood, I think I was like, whoa, hmm. because it, um, I, I think if I had a little bit of a feeling that life was hard and supposed to be, and it's supposed to be how you react and respond, um, I didn't. I would prefer not to be such a reactor and then respond as I'm learning, you know, let me respond to a situation and not go for like the worst case scenario or get so upset. Um, I, I think, you know, I remember I have the power to choose. I can't choose what happened that Stephen was killed, but I do have a lot of power in this and I can really frame how Lucy and Wyatt are going to grow up now and give them what I didn't get after losing a dad and what I got. 
what worked, what didn't, and give them really rich life's experiences. Like I got them back on a plane five months later alone, which was crazy if you think wow. about it. Yeah. But I took them to Punta Cana and we, you know, um, I wept on the, the lounge chair every time they were like swimming behind my sunglasses, you know, and it doesn't mean I didn't hide my tears from them either because I wanted them to see that I did have a reaction. I just didn't want them to see how much I was crying. And then, you know, um, because they had to see me as real. And, you know, this is like real, like we're all experiencing something to, together. Um, I think what I'm happiest for that, you know, Stephen knew that I lost a lot. And he said to me, I'm always, I'm gonna give back what you lost. Like those holidays after your brother and father died, I'm gonna give you all these things. And hmm. it was really important to me to keep that fine line of Stephen's in our memory and our life, but we also have new rituals and Lucy and Wyatt are my compass. Whenever I've gotten lost or off course in anything, I just had to look to one of them or both of them and they've shown me the way. It's not like I, you know, Wyatt wanted to surf and now I'm the proudest surf mama around. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, if he didn't have a disability, he might be an extreme surfer and I'd be terrified like he'd- Yeah, doing the hundred foot waves and- Yeah, like Wyatt. the guys, yes, or, yeah. you know, hanging out with Garrett McNamara. So maybe there's- you know, um, it's so really from the heart, it's my, my babies who are now adults. Like that is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And that all became from Steven. So there's a yeah. song called like, um, the greatest night of my life or something in it. If I hadn't met him, I wouldn't have these two children. And mm -hmm. right. Would they, would he have been killed? You know, the whole, if you go down that, what if, what if it is what yeah. it is. And, um, today we're doing great. Awesome. <laughs> and, you know, I have a lot of hope, you know, but this, there's a lot of pain in this world. And so I'm always, like I said, my mom taught me, I have to go out there and help others. I'm not just going to sit and, you know, in my, my kids are okay. No, there's yeah. many that need help and people. And yeah. I do it. Lucy says, you get to know, I, if I'm on the beach or in the grocery store, I met a neuropsychiatrist on the beach the other day that helped me with my son. Yeah. So yeah. I talk to everybody. I fall in love every day. It could be mm -hmm. an old lady that gives me advice. It could be a janitor in a building that I talk to. I acknowledge everybody because I always learn something from everybody. So that's like, that's a lot of um, the brightness that has come after that dark day. I just still talk to everybody. I can. Your, your senses have been heightened probably as a result. Yes. So, do you have any plans for September 11th, 2021 for that day? <laughs> I know 20 years. Um, truthfully, in a weird way, it's not on my mind. I'm getting ready. I'm leaving the beach and getting ready to move to Boston. So I think I'm just going to, um, if I was at the beach, I would just be at, do something fun at the beach, but I will be in uh, the Hudson Valley. So I think I'll just take a cool hike and um, maybe see one of my 9-11 friends who might be, because our kids are now off when we were, sure. our kids were little, we always spend it together. We'd go down to my beach house in Beach Haven when I used to own it, or we would meet in town or one of our houses for dinner or something like that. But I think it's really important that Wyatt's at the farm. They don't make any mention of it. They just let yeah. him be, no he. And Lucy's, like I said, might do a run with her boyfriend. And I talk to my kids every day anyway. So I think I'll just, um, yeah. I'll wake with curiosity and see what the day brings. You will wake with curiosity. You will. Absolutely. I'm going to follow <laughs> up with you on the 12th and see how you're okay. doing. 
Please, so, you can call so, me on the 7th. <laughs> I will. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't be surprised if I do. So, no, it's nice to connect with you and to hear your story. And okay. just, uh, you're 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 a blessing to so many people, and you're touching so many people's lives. And and uh, yeah, inspiration for all of us who go through tough stuff. I mean, nobody's you know your tough stuff just happened to be on worldwide television. No, you know, and that so, was the hardest part. Yeah. Kids. Yeah, because I'm yeah. sure that they had other kids saying things to them, or or you know, kids can be cruel. And yes, so I'm sure they were. No, and that, that happened, Lucy, at different times, and yeah. both of them were easily triggered by anything at the you know every year. So that was always you know careful. And you know, I used to go into the grocery stores and cover it or tell cover them, the magazines on the counter. That was off, and they knew it. In my town of Ridgewood, they were great. Like they knew us. They would turn all the magazines. Mm -hmm. Or if I if I came in with them, or I couldn't have the TV on, and it used to be terrible. I'd say till till Lucy got to college, then it was like all right, you know, till you know it, yeah. it takes a long. They say time heals, but I think it's what you do in your time that is the healing. And so it's I owe so much to Doctor Guild for you know. I mean, I can't. I was thinking about it in prep to talk to you. I would call him numerous times on holidays and this, like he's at home with his family and say, I'm worried about this, or do you think this is okay? And it was usually, and he was so gracious in every single time or calling me back or whatever. And I think he really just knew that it was my being alone without those set of hands that I just needed. Yes, Lisa, that's great. They're fine. It's not, you know, I just, you know, he, he's helped me so much. And I, he's also helped a lot of people. I've sent people, a couple of 9-11 people and a couple of other people with marriage issues or issues with their kids have said he's like incredible. So if anyone finds the right person, it's not people think you're weak or this. I've heard people going to therapy, but the thing is that it's like, um, I think I wrote it to you that Inside, I'm as ripped as the actor Mark, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, outside, yeah. I now have to catch up because it's exhausting doing that work because I would be emotionally hungover often. Like, whoa, I just cried and that. So I'm a very active person, but I think like, um, you know, I do know people that are physically in great shape and haven't done any emotional work. So yeah, me too. <laughs> I think it's like all yeah. of us have something, you know. We yeah, all absolutely. Well, this has been a, a, a treat for me and uh, it's nice to, to be able to hear your story and, and uh, you know, put a little bit more of a face to, you know, because I went through trauma, not like you at all. But I mean, you know, you still see those images and you still think about that day and you, you know, we think of what the impact was on our world. I mean, everything changed, you know, not just in your personal life, but how we travel has changed, how we do everything changed because of that day. And um, so, you know, I think we've all dealt with a lot of loss in different ways. And so even some of the things you've shared with me today have helped me. So I appreciate that. Well, I think even when I go to every airport, I thank every security person. I tell everybody my story, who it is, and thank mm -hmm. you for showing up. And thank you. I know this makes it harder and that, and I'm sorry. Obviously, it wasn't Stephen's fault. You know, I mean, it's not my fault, but it, it, it connects us and bonds us. So I don't, I like to share my story. And that's why I did media to keep Stephen's life alive. And when I did it in the first few years, it was, I knew that I was in shock. So I wanted a record of remembering what I was kind of going yeah, through. Yeah. And, but I always want to tell people, I, I say it too freely to everyone, but I do feel like we all collect, you know, just like with the pandemic, it's like, how you, how did you do in lockdown? You know, 
we all want to kind of share our stories and oh, oh, I should have done that or that or you know or whatever. Um, it's you know it was like really traumatic and trauma is trauma. So mine isn't any more or any less than anyone else's. And like I said, people have it a lot worse and you know in so many situations in the world that it's that's going on currently and has. Um, you know we just have to show up for each other. Yeah. And, you know, the kind here. everybody had after 9-11, especially in my tri-state area, I was disappointed that that didn't stay. Me too. And I wasn't <laughs> where you are, but around the country, probably around the world, but in our country in and, particular, we all talked a lot here in California about how close we all felt. Right. And then that just didn't stay. And the same thing with the pandemic. I felt like, oh, there's a bonding thing. We're all going through it. And then I see people going back to um, living in a way that's less mindful of another person and it scares me because I also feel like these traumatic horrible things are big like even when the hurricane came I took my son to a hotel just because he doesn't understand if the internet I knew the power got right on the water mm -hmm. what if the water yeah what if it flows yeah literally 15 feet from the water the woman at the hotel couldn't have been kinder to my situation with Wyatt just the manager was checking into a little small hotel you know on the side of a road we talked and talked and it was this bonding because there's a hurricane coming and she sees that and she said to me everyone should help you when they see you with a child with special needs because they saw that Wyatt was struggling with the cart you know when you move and I wasn't some man was trying to take the cart from me it was ridiculous but hmm. you know she she kind of interceded and nicely said like that mother probably is going through way more than we could ever know. She told me she said this to him after. And I was like, why did you do that? She said, I could, she didn't even know I was a 9-11 winner. Right. She, yeah. she almost passed out. No, but yeah. she, you're, he was obviously having trouble. He doesn't look disabled, but you can see the, sure. the disability when he's interacting. And I thought like, she's just, her name's Coletta. I will never, I will always remember her because when we do step up for each other, in those ways. So I just hope like how many more lessons are we all going to have to Yeah. Have? How many times do we have to get hit on the head before we realize <laughs> with it? Like, yeah. you know, so I hope that from the heart, like that I'm these lessons that I take and I'm not a perfect and I make mistakes all the time and I can get, you know, why it has taught me patience. Boy, do I have to learn patience, but mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that I don't get impatient or I feel frustrated or all those emotions. It's just that Dr. Guile just taught me how, you know, and I have to remember to wrestle with every emotion in between until I can talk to someone like you. And you're also another gem in my life because you've reached out and you've always been kind and your emails were just so welcoming. I love opening them and you just speak to me in such a um, compassionate and friendly and empathetic way. And, you know, you see me. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. And I just, you know, I, I was I was raised to, you know, recognize that ever the value of people and I'm far from perfect as well, just so you know, as we've talked about, but, uh, no, I, I can't imagine what you've been through again and not just from 20 years ago, but with your kids and, and you talk a lot about the difference between responding and reacting. And I've used that in training sessions over the years, you know, and I use the analogy that if you go to the doctor and he gives you medication and you come back in a week and he says, you're reacting, that means it's not good. Right. right. He tells you you're responding. That's great. Stay on oh. whatever you're doing. Keep doing it. You're responding to the treatment. Oh, right. Wow. Um, I like you know, so if you're, you can react to what's happened to you right. and you can get it all over everybody. 
right. you can respond to it and make a difference. And that's what you're, and that's, I think that's, that's how I label you and not labels the wrong word, but as I think about you, you're responding well, to the, to the tragedies in your life so beautifully. But early on, like I told you, I, that's why I reached out to Dr. Gov because I felt like I was reacting. Like I was kind of resent when I saw a father and a son and maybe the father didn't hold the door for me at a coffee shop. I get inside really like, yeah, little things will just piss you off. Yeah. And I would, I, I mean, and that's a human emotion and it's natural to feel something, but it's not natural to, it's not good to act it out or say something. And I think like, I, I went like, Hey, you know, you held the door and you know, this was many years ago and I was so appalled at myself. And of course I went over and I said, I'm sorry. And he was just like, either one didn't even mean anything to him because he probably thought she's a bitch and well, hell now she's coming over to apologize. But I'm so careful, like like the way I was raised or what I know, and I don't. But I also don't think I was taught what to do with these emotions that I had, sure. like from being a child when my dad died. Yeah. My brother started a horrendous drug problem. Like I, I needed to talk these out. So I think what happened was, well, Doctor Gao said that's what it happens. But you have to. That's why you're coming here. And then he said to me, most people when I tell them the work it's going to take, don't ever come back. Mm -hmm. so yeah. I don't really. And he was so impressed that I even asked, I was doing twice a week, I asked for more. <laughs> he said, <laughs> I, I'm not gonna do more. He said, I could take you to Vienna, like for, you know, and we could do nine months and I'd have you, okay, but you have to live everyday life. You have to see the kids and you have to wrestle those motions without me in between mm -hmm. on those days and then come back and tell me how you did. Now, a guy at the door who doesn't hold the door for me does not get a response like that. I might be like, what's that guy's problem in my head? Yeah. but I can use my improv or my there you go. <laughs> yeah. or Make humor of it or nothing at all of it. Yeah. yeah. And that's like, that's self-work, self-protection. It's not good to react to anybody. That's what road rage is or anything. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying this happened overnight. This is a lot of work that mm -hmm. I did a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And yeah. um, yeah, so, <laughs> but so we could go on and on. I know. I know. So I this know. is great. No, I'm, I'm I'm still recording. I don't know how much of it we'll use, if not all but, of it. But I mean, it's it's, it's just a great conversation. Your generous uh, audience, and thank you for listening. I know I talk a lot, but I said like I it, it, this is a lot in me, and you've helped me therapeutically because I haven't told this part of these stories in a while. So it's really refreshing. <laughs>